This is episode 195 of That Shakespeare Life. Bring our podcast into your classroom with access to our video streaming library, printable worksheets, lesson plans, and activities that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Unlock all these benefits when you become a member here at That Shakespeare Life, where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at castycash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Adam G. Hooks a professor of Shakespeare at the University of Iowa and author of Selling Shakespeare, Biography, Bibliography, and the Book Trade. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. There's a collection by Lady Mary Wortley Montague, which was published in 1763, and she talks about uh, gift exchanges between Elizabeth I and the Turkish Belid Sultan Safi. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In a series of highly political and pro-English history plays known as Shakespeare's Henriad performances, Shakespeare uses a variety of figurative words and expressions to describe the, quote, Turks, which were members of the Ottoman Empire. Almost all of Shakespeare's references are rather negative towards the Ottomans, which at face value may lead you to believe that Shakespeare and his contemporaries were opposed to or perhaps at war with the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century. However, historical exploration into the real political situation of England towards the then-called Ottoman Turks was far from negative. In fact, Elizabeth I saw the Ottoman Empire as an essential ally in her post-Catholic England currently at war with Spain. So how do we reconcile the essential nature of the Ottoman Empire under Elizabeth I with Shakespeare's negative references to them by the characters in his history plays. Our guest this week, Aisha Hussein, is here to take us back to the 16th century and introduce us to the Ottoman Empire, what it means to be Turkish, and what we need to know about the Ottomans in Shakespeare's plays. Aisha Hussein is a final year PhD candidate at the University of Salford, whose research interests include Turkish otherness, fictional terror, Anglo-Ottoman commerce, gender studies, Orientalism, and in particular, crusading and anti-crusading discourses in early modern English drama. She also oversees the events page at Medieval and Early Modern Orients. Aisha holds a Bachelor of Arts in English and Drama and a Master of Arts in Renaissance English Literature. She was awarded the Pathways to Excellence Studentship by the University of Salford, upon commencing her PhD studies in September of 2018. Her current research investigates how the emergence of a more positive theatrical Turkish type in the works of Fulk Greville, Thomas Goff, and Roger Boyle reflects in a shift from their contemporaries, which can be considered an anti-crusading discourse. We'll place links to Aisha's Twitter handle as well as her website to Medieval and Early Modern Orients in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Aisha. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. 
During the reign of Elizabeth I, the queen firmly reinforces the country's Protestantism and acts violently against Catholicism. There's a ban on Jews in England that would not be reversed until well after Shakespeare in the 17th century. And yet with all of her opposition to non-Protestant religions, we see Elizabeth I actively court and work hard to solidify a political alignment with the Ottoman Empire, which was decidedly non-Protestant. Why was Elizabeth not more opposed to their predominantly Muslim religion? So to try and answer this question, I want to draw upon a study from 2019 by critic Oz Oktem, who talked about how James I signed a peace treaty, um, peace agreement with Spain in 1604, which not only ended the Anglo-Spanish War, but also as a consequence, it inverted the amicable ties that Elizabeth had previously formed with uh, between England and the Ottoman Empire. There's a collection by Lady Mary Wortley Montague, in which was published in 1763, and she talks about uh, gift exchanges between Elizabeth I and the Turkish Belid Sultan Safi after the establishment of the Levant Company. And this is historical context, which early modern playwrights often... So, for example, I'm looking at the moment at two early modern playwrights, Fulk Greville and Roger Boyle, who... Uh, have two female monarch characters, Roxolana and Isabella, and they seem to echo these positive alliances between female monarchs that were actually happening in England at the time. And in addition to this, Montague also outlines how Elizabeth's formation of military coalition with the Ottomans in exchange for providing them with tin and ammunition uh, after the outbreak of war between England and Spain in 1585 was also important historical context. So bearing all of this in mind, early modern drama often offered comment upon political turmoil that the restoration brought about in England, given that the country was in a much more stable position in both a political sense and a religious sense under the rule of Elizabeth I, as opposed to um, monarchs afterwards. So as a result of this peace agreement, attacks on Spanish shipping ended, but it ended the war, but it also left approximately 50,000 English naval workers unemployed and what that resulted in is it encouraged many of those naval workers to turn to piracy. Of the 55,000 approximately English seamen who now found themselves engaged in English piracy, those that frequented the North African coast specifically, often they converted to Islam. And this was most likely because English pirates, who the phrase that is often used was turned Turk, they thrived under the freedom and protection, as well as financial benefits that came about and were provided to them by rulers of the Muslim worlds. So the figure of the early modern apostate or renegade, it seemed to cause both anxiety and it caused fascination. And thus the Turk play, uh, as it was often known, was born uh, in early modern England and populated the early modern London stages in order to satiate the interest in that the English public seemed to express in the customs of the Muslim worlds at the time. What was the feud between the Ottomans and the Habsburg about during Shakespeare's lifetime? And did England get involved? So the feud between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs during Shakespeare's time was often known as the Long Turkish War or uh, the Thirteen Years War because it was waged between the years 1593 and 1606. Um, Sometimes in uh, Europe, it's called the Fifteen Years War because they go back and consider the 1591 to 92 Turkish campaign that's that captured Bilhach. So that that 
contributes to two more years, but generally it's the 13 years war. And it was basically an indecisive land war between the Habsburg monarchy and the Ottoman Empire over the principalities of Transylvania, Moldavia and Wallachia. Overall, the conflict consisted of a number of very costly battles and sieges that actually didn't give either side any kind of benefit. There was no kind of resolution or clear victor in uh, the war. And as far as we know, England did not become involved in the Ottoman-Habsburg conflict. References to the Ottoman-Habsburg Long War, um, according to a critic, Anders Ingram, feature in 22 of 54 works recorded in the registers of the Company of Stationers of London. And that those records are between 1591 and 1610. It appears that the Ottoman-Habsburg conflict, what it did was highlight a gap in the market for works written in English on the Ottomans, which was exploited by authors, printers and publishers. And many of these publications were Austrian works, later translated into English. One example is the history of the wars between the Turks and the Persians, which was translated into English by Abraham Hartwell in 1595. However, there was then a call for original English accounts of the Long War, as opposed to just translations into English Uh, and the issues that the Ottomans posed to the Occident. So one of these was the policy of the Turkish Empire in 1597, which was written and published by an anonymous author. And these all became very prevalent at this time. So whilst most of the works mentioned are heavily influenced by anti-Ottoman sentiment, it seems that in 1603, at the point when James I ascended the English throne, there was decline in publications concerned, however negatively, with the figure of the Ottoman or the Turk, And the most likely cause of this decline in English publications and English translations on the Ottomans was the piece of Zitzvatarok of 1606, which brought the Ottoman Habsburg War to an end. And this resulted in a glut in the market brought about by um, the sudden proliferation of works on this topic. Again, quoting from Ingrid's study there. So what's the difference between the Orient as a term and the Ottomans? Are these groups geographically different for Shakespeare? Is he referring to different things or were these interchangeable? So the easiest way I think I can answer this question is by looking at um, the definitions of the Orient, the Ottoman Empire, as well as the Ottomans. So the definitions I'll give are both from Merriam-Webster Dictionary. So the Orient is defined as a term for the East, traditionally comprising anything that belongs to the Eastern world in relation to Europe. It's an atonym of the Occident, or in other words, the Western world. Um, And it's also defined as regions or countries lying to the East of a specified or implied point. Um, So the Eastern regions or countries of the world. But it was formerly understood to include uh, regions such as the Middle East, for example, lying to the east and southeast of southern Europe, that now usually understood to refer to the regions and countries of Eastern Asia. And as far as the Ottoman Empire goes, it was it's defined as a former Turkish sultanate in southeastern Europe, Western Asia and northern Africa, including at its greatest extent Turkey, Syria, Palestine, Arabia, Egypt, the Barbary states, um, the Balkans, parts of Russia and Hungary, and also Mesopotamia. An Ottoman is a member of the English uh, Turkish dynasty founded by Osman I that ruled the Ottoman Empire, or a citizen or functionary of the Ottoman Empire. During the early modern period, most English playwrights, including Shakespeare, either conflated the two terms, 
um, Oriental Ottomans due to lack of understanding of the correct differentiation, or they just completely omitted both terms, favoring instead the term Turk. The term Turk often had stereotypical negative features associated with them by the English. So things like lustfulness, political corruption, barbarism, and these things that were attached to the Turk in Western cultural discourses were also mirrored in the drama of the period. So if you look at, um, if you just search the literature online database, that demonstrates how theatre appropriates the stereotype of the lustful Turk in plays published before and after the Restoration. I looked up the, the adjective lustful in all its variants and spellings, for example, and it's attributed to the Turk in a selection of 43 plays during the years 1600 to 1670. So what's interesting, however, is the text's widespread combination of the Turks' sensuous appetite with political tyranny, as evidenced in plays such as Lust's Dominion uh, by Thomas Decker, The Fair Maid of the West by Thomas Haywood, and The Renegado by Philip Massinger, to name a couple. And in these dramatic works, the traditional Orientalist stereotype of lustful Turks reappears in the characters, um, the Eastern rulers. So um, some of these characters are Eleazar and Malishag, who successfully contribute to the downfall of European monarchs in the plays by persuading them to embrace lustful behaviours and thus they become unfit unfit rulers in the eyes of their English subject. Shakespeare uses the phrase holy war only once in his plays and that comes from King John when he describes King Richard as, quote, Richard that robbed the lion of his heart and fought the holy wars in Palestine, end quote. This references to the infamous crusades against the Muslims and in defense of Jerusalem. Aisha, is there any irony in Shakespeare's references to holy war in context of England's war against Spain, since Elizabeth I was at the time Shakespeare wrote King John, aligning with the same Muslims that Richard the Lionheart had opposed? I think to answer this, I need to give a bit of a background on Orientalism, if that's okay. And um, basically uh, the most well-known uh, critic that writes about Orientalism is Edward Said because he wrote the book Orientalism in 1978. And he basically defines it as a critical concept to describe the West's commonly contemptuous description or portrayal of the East or the Orient. And what is now known as this concept of Orientalism Um, gave English Christians during the early modern period the opportunity to build their own identity as being directly opposed to the identity of the cruel, barbarous Muslim Turk as a stereotype rather than more nuanced portrayals of actual Ottoman rulers. So thus the construct of the Turkish Muslim as a theatrical type on the early modern stage fueled the perception that the English should compete against the Ottomans to obtain more land and as a result to increase the global presence of both Christianity and of English commerce. We know that this didn't happen in reality, but the concept itself was there. One of the ways that the English could have competed with the Ottomans had they wanted to or had they had the resources and the strength to was by waging a crusade or a holy war against them. In Lee Mannion's study, he outlines that a crusade could be defined as uh, a widespread military cause one or as a conflict in which an individual or small collection of individuals participated too. So these definitions of the crusading discourse in early modern drama, specifically Turk plays, are not simply conceived as um, having the sole focus of conversion and racial identity, but as being mainly based around the medieval crusading narratives that encouraged holy war 
And these medieval narratives, what they do is advocate for a united Christian action, and this is quoting from Mannion study, against the Turks to the populace, despite the conciliatory attitude of Elizabeth I's government or the anti-Catholic polemic of ardent Protestant reformers. There also exists the critical interest in the siege of Jerusalem at the end of the First Crusade, as well as how the literary representation of this holy city was altered by English writers to promote personal devotion and also to promote national identity. Another critic that talks about this is Suzanne conklin Akbari. She examines how the Western conceptualization of religious otherness as well as geographical otherness um, in medieval and early modern literature and culture contributed to Western Occidental perceptions of the Muslim other and concludes that medieval and early modern Orientalism, which not only features in literature of both periods, uh, medieval and early modern, but also in dramatic works, it attempted to create clear distinctions between the virtuous Christian and the villainous Muslim in the English imagination. So bearing all of this in mind, it's indeed possible that there could be some irony in Shakespeare's references to holy war in the context of England's war against Spain, because like you say, Elizabeth I was at the time Shakespeare wrote King John aligning with the Muslims that Richard the Lionheart had opposed. The reproduction of medieval crusading ideals in early modern literature and drama, it can't simply be dismissed as a second rate narrative that, because if you look at studies like like Mannion's as well as Nicola McDonald's, they both talk about the idea that drama isn't just a second rate narrative and it does unquestionably reproduce established ideologies given the renewed interest in Ottoman culture and the way in which Holy War held an unquestionable narrative power and also cultural influence in literary and dramatic texts. There was a good deal of religious categorization going on in Shakespeare's lifetime with the Catholics, the Protestants, the Puritans, even Jews in England. However, when it comes to the Ottomans, why are they not referred to as Muslims? So this is a really interesting question because the term Turk comes into play, which kind of serves as an umbrella term to talk about anyone who wasn't anyone who was from the Oriental Hemisphere. So the Turk was basically, there's a number of critics that talk about this, but two of the most uh, helpful resources that I found are Richmond Barber's study and Daniel Vickers' study. And they talk about how the Turk was England's primary Eastern object of fear and fantasy in early modern literature, as well as during the period more generally. And depictions of the stereotyped figure of the Turk on the early modern stage also achieved a sense of articulacy and a variety that would perhaps be repeated, but would not be superseded. So the Turk, as these literary theorists highlight, became basically a social construct that contributed to the English desire to create distinction between the virtuous English Christian self and the demonized Turkish Muslim other. Usually Muslim was not written as Muslim in early modern plays in England. It was usually written as Mohammedan. And most early modern plays portray the stereotype Turk as being the antithesis of what English Christians believe they should be and how they should behave from an English Christian perspective. So like I mentioned before, they had uh, lustful qualities attributed to them. They were uh, violent, barbaric. They were 
uh, inconsistent, had very impulsive behavior. So they were therefore seen as politically corrupt and tyrannical. Mediterranean and Islamic otherness included a, a very wide variety of identities, which as Vickers points out, they were defined by an overlapping set of identity categories, including race, religion, somatic difference, sexuality, as well as uh, political affiliation. So these pejorative epithets that were associated with the Ottomans in 16th and 17th centuries, um, they contributed to them being categorized in English literature and drama as bloody cruel, barbarous, lustful. And Turks were also likened to things like natural disasters, such as tsunamis, tornadoes. Um, They were likened to wild animals like wild hogs, wolves, snakes. So the wildness of their behaviours was also reflected in theatrical depictions of Turkish rule, which often critiqued their political efficiency and Again, where it, they were often described as being tyrannical or their rule was described as being a yoke. So basically, all of this is to say that the other, the Turkish other is defined as the binary opposite to the English Christians who wrote and watched plays about Muslim Turks in the early modern theatre in their perception. So the English may have created this binary as a resistance against the threat posed by the strength of the Ottoman Empire to an unstable Christianity in the hopes that it would maybe create Christian unity and strength. And as far as literary representations are concerned, the Turk is most often examined within an Orientalist framework because the trope of the lustful Turk, the barbaric Turk, the tyrannical Turk, it was created via a style of thought in which the Turk is seen as the religious or racial other, both consciously and subconsciously. And another interesting concept that might be useful to answer this question is to look at Gerald McLean's study and definition of imperial envy. And this is basically imperial envy is the English vilifying and degrading of the Turk and their Islamic values, which is stemmed from probably from jealousy of the wealth and the power that the Ottoman Empire held and how it factored into English perceptions of the Ottoman empire during the medieval and early modern periods and imperial envy served to contain Turkish power as well as English captivation and anxiety about the Turk within early modern writing and performance. So they they were really seen by the English as a necessary evil in some ways. Yes, exactly. I found a map of Palestine from the 1570s, and it is situated where modern-day Israel is located today. For Shakespeare, was Jerusalem part of Palestine instead of Israel in the 1590s when King John was written? So this is really interesting about the map. And I also did a little bit of digging and consulted some maps of Palestine and the Ottoman Empire from the late 1500s. And also came across the same thing where Jerusalem looked like it was situated as part of Palestine on these maps. And I found a very useful website, uh, online resource, thedailysaba.com, which gave a bit of history about Jerusalem, where it was situated and its history from 1260 to 1517. As well as, uh, so this was 1260 to 1517 was Jerusalem being ruled by the Mamluks. And in the wider region and until about 1300, there were many clashes that happened between the Mamluks on one side and the Crusaders and the Mongols on the other side. And Jerusalem was 
a very significant site of Mamluk architectural patronage. Their building activity was quite substantial during this period in the city. And there's around about 90 remaining structures that date from the 13th century to the 15th centuries. So the type of structures or structural remains that are evidenced are things like mosques, libraries, fountains, public baths, hospitals. And much of this building activity was concentrated around the edges of the Temple Mount. And then following Mamluk rule, Jerusalem, it fell to the Ottoman Turks, who generally remained in control until 1917. The Ottoman Sultan Selim entered Jerusalem on the 29th of December 1516, and he defeated the Mamluk ruler Kanzu Gavri in the Battle of Marj Davik in 1516, which resulted in both Syria and Palestine joining the Ottoman lands. And under Ottoman rule, the Palestinian territory was organised into three states, which were Jerusalem, Gaza and Nablus, which were all linked to the Damascus province. And Palestine in the last period of the Ottoman Empire was linked to the state of Sidon and later to Syria and then to Beirut, which was founded during the last period of Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire. And during Ottoman rule, Jerusalem enjoyed a very prosperous period, um, very peaceful period under uh, the Ottoman Emperor Suleiman the Magnificent. So he did things like rebuild the walls around the old city and Jerusalem during this period remained remained a provincial and religiously important centre and didn't straddle the main trade route between Damascus and Cairo. There's a reference book called Modern History or the Present State of All Nations, which was written in 1744. And I'm quoting from this. It says that Jerusalem is still reckoned the capital city of Palestine, though much fallen from its ancient grandeur. So that definitely suggests that in the 18th century, Jerusalem was uh, still reckoned the capital city of Palestine. And the Ottomans brought many innovations. So the things like modern postal systems and carriage services. So those were among the first signs of Ottoman modernization of the city of Jerusalem. Um, so just to kind of wrap up, the Ottoman Empire ruled Jerusalem and much of the Middle East from 1517 to 1917 after World War I. Great Britain took over Jerusalem, which was part of Palestine at the time, and then the British controlled the city and surrounding region until Israel became an independent state in 1948. So that kind of just gives a bit of a history of Jerusalem and how it was situated in Palestine, as a lot of the maps from the late 1570s and 1590s suggest. The Ottoman sultans on the stage of the early modern plays seem to enact violence at the drop of a hat without any lawful moral justification beyond their own greed or ambition. Now, you've referenced that some of this was a stereotypical impression of the Turks in general by early modern England. But was this warlike reputation consistent with the contemporary perception of the leaders of the Ottoman Empire under Elizabeth I? So in the first half of the 17th century, the resurgence of the Crusades, which took place between 1095 and 1291, as a historical context in early modern English literature, is testimony to a renewed interest in the Ottoman culture, which was very likely determined by the anxieties that emerged from contemporary Anglo-Ottoman trade arrangements. Uh, Ottomans were or should I say Turks, because um, the Turk was the stereotypical representation of Ottomans. They were compared to 
uh, as teriyaki oculu highlights compared to the rampaging Goths, Vandals and Lombards who were blamed for the destruction of ancient Rome. And so through the crusading discourse, it's possible to trace the roots of early modern representations of Turks back to the religious as well as the cultural history of medieval Europe when the first crusade was seen as a means to relieve the relieve the Orient from what European Christians perceived as barbarism. And the resulting cultural anxiety situated within literature depicting the Crusades often took central stage in early modern works where writers like um, Spencer and his Fairy Queen, Marlowe and his Tamburlaine, and indeed Shakespeare and uh, his Othello, for example, offer interesting perspectives on the crusading narrative and how it fashioned the start of the modern age. And this resulted in an expected neat opposition between the European audience and the what were known as the other, who were now perceived as the lustful Turk. And the derogatory representation of the Turks was even corroborated if we look back at um, accounts of uh, Pope Urban's the second speech from 1095, who claimed that Muslim Ottomans acted upon their lust against Christian males, females and bishops in the form of sexual abuse. He says that they circumcised the Christians, what shall I say, of the abominable rape of women. Um, so it's this demonization of the Ottomans. Um, and even English travel narratives contribute to discussing Turkish male sexuality through an Orientalist discourse, or what we now know as an Orientalist discourse. So if we look at English travel accounts like Sir Henry Blount in 1636, who describes Turks as being addicted to sodomy, and this is an aspect which, which also is a recurring theme in another travelogue by William Lithgow in 1640. So I think that as far as my research is concerned um, and how I've looked into this, I think it's attempts to demonstrate how any strict East-West binary exists is kind of unattainable. There's a number of early modern playwrights, just to name a couple, that I've looked into extensively, Fulk Greville, Thomas Goff and Roger Boyle. These dramatists recognise that a number of historical Ottoman authoritarian figures actually possess admirable qualities which resulted in a selection of battlefield victories and these qualities were ones which 17th century England and English uh, monarchs and rulers may have wished to emulate under increasingly shaky political circumstances after the rule of Elizabeth I ended and especially during the restoration period so Again, if we look back at Edward Said's original theory of Orientalism that I mentioned beforehand, when this is applied to early modern literature, what it does is create a twofold prototype, which doesn't fully account for non-military interactions between those from the Orient and the Occident during the early modern period. And despite the recognition of Ottoman military capacity, as testified by early modern English dramatists who did not usually attempt to fictionalize Christian victory in a crusade against the Muslims, Turks were still depicted as cruel and lustful, politically corrupt tyrants. Such negative depictions might have been the product of English anxieties about being forced to undergo things like Islamic conversion, for example, um, as Daniel Vick has references. And also another interesting study, which is useful to talk about this topic, is Nabil Mutter's study of religious conflict between Muslims and Christians, and indeed also between Protestants and Catholics during the 16th and 17th centuries. And what is interesting is a distinction between the seemingly violent interactions between the Christian and 
the Ottoman um, or the, uh, the Ottoman Muslims portrayed in English drama in contrast to the lack of violence between these opposing groups um, historically and factually. So drama of this period was used basically to create fictional terror by staging repeated holy wars that were inspired by the medieval crusades. This fictional terror created on the early modern stage may have been constructed because of hopes held by the English Christians that a resurgence of nationalism in England would be initiated in preparation for a possible war between themselves and the Ottomans, which, of course, we know um, during the early modern period after the Crusades ended never did happen in reality. We have unpacked just a huge barrel of information here, I think, when it comes to the Ottomans and Ottoman Turks, their representation on stage and Shakespeare's understanding of them during his lifetime. And I so appreciate you sharing this history with us, but I wonder if you have some favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to explore further. Yeah, okay. So there's a few, actually, there's so many that I would recommend, but there's um, a handful that I think I'll talk about a few that kind of directly relate to the Ottomans and Shakespeare. And then there's a couple of more general ones as well. So first of all, I'd recommend that people go and look at um, a website that I am part of the research team for, and I also do the events editing for. It's called Medieval and Early Modern Orients. The website's memoriants.com. And there is basically a history of the Ottoman Empire, which can be found there. It's an interactive map um, that spans the years, the Ottoman Empire during the years of 1299 to 1716. And it was written by members of our research team, Samira Hassan, Munir Maksadoglu and Nat Cutter. And then also on this website is I've written a blog a few months ago, which is called This is the English, Not the Turkish Core, Ottomans and Shakespeare's Henriad. And this basically explores how in Shakespeare's Henriad, uh, English Christian characters frequently employ negative Turkish tropes when criticizing each other's corrupt political agendas. But these tropes differ from the more positive characterizations of the Ottomans found in English chronicles of Turkish history. So I basically engage with the intersections between crusading and anti-crusading discourses and Orientalism to see how uh, the Shakespearean character of Henry Bolingbroke seems to elevate himself and his own political agenda by casting Turks as a negative contrast. There's a special issue that I would recommend by Mark Hutchings. It was edited by Mark Hutchings and it's called Shakespeare and Islam and it was published in the Shakespeare Journal in 2008 and it basically conceives of Shakespeare and Islam in its broadest sense uh, conceptually and it opens up to consideration both the early modern and more recent periods, questioning doctrinal questions such as Islam as a flag of convenience for our purposes, um, as an umbrella term that takes the Ottoman Empire, but also the Persian, a subject that perhaps unsurprisingly tends to be overshadowed by its stronger neighbour, the Ottoman Empire, and also extends it to a discussion of 20th and 21st century issues of Shakespearean interpretation. Another one that I talked about in a couple of the questions was Lee Mannion's study. And that one's a really good study. It's called Narrating the Crusades, Loss and Recovery in Medieval and Early Modern England. And it was published in 2014. And he basically examines crusading's narrative generating power as it's reflected in English literature from 1300 to 1604. So a really comprehensive, easy to follow study that spans a wide period of crusading narratives. There's a book by Matthew Dimmock, which is called New Turks, Dramatising Islam and the Ottomans in Early Modern England. And this explores 
how print culture helped define and promulgate a European construction of Turkishness that was very nebulous and ever-shifting. And it places in context the developing encounters between the Ottoman and the Christian worlds to show how ongoing engagements reflected the nature of the Turk in 16th century English literature. And then one that's directly related to Shakespeare is an article by Shuhad Ahmed Tilwani, and it's called The Orient, Villains in the Plays of Marlowe and Shakespeare, which was published in the Rutkatha Journal of Interdisciplinary Studies and Humanities. Um, This was a recent one that was only published a year ago. And it talks about how 16th century British sociocultural and economic scenarios that held a remarkable efficacy in shaping the characters in literature. The Oriental Muslim characters were how how they were portrayed, particularly um, penned by uh, both Shakespeare in Titus Andronicus and Othello and Marlowe in Tamburlaine, The Great Parts 1 and 2. And then finally, another one I would recommend is another more general one, which I um, found quite helpful, was The Ottoman Empire and the World Around It, which is a book by Soraya Faroqi, which was um, written in 2004. And it uh, basically looks at a huge study of original early modern sources, including diplomatic records, travel and geographical writing, as well as personal accounts and looks at Islamic law and how the world was made up of the House of Islam and the House of War with the Ottoman Sultan as supreme ruler of the Islamic world. I think it's a really interesting study because of the Ottoman Empire in the early modern periods. Faroqi demonstrates that there was no necessarily iron curtain between the Ottoman and the other worlds, but rather a very long established network of connections So things like trading, cultural, diplomatic, religious connections. So um, it gives a very broad broad history of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. These are excellent resources. I'm so excited to dive into them myself. And I know that you will be too. We will put links to all of these articles, including several of the books that Aisha mentions today are available on Google Books. Um, So there are free digital copies you can read, and we'll make sure you have the links to that, as well as to the articles and the website Medieval and Early Modern Orients, all packed into the show notes. So make sure you go visit there to find those. Now, Aisha, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Okay, this is a really hard question because there's so many good sources and I had such a difficult time picking. If I had to just pick one, I found one a very helpful one that I'm actually leafing through at the moment because I'm working on a chapter of my PhD thesis that um, investigates Anglo-Ottoman correspondence related to the activities of the Levant Company in the 17th century which all take the form of letters housed at the National Archives in Kew, London. And this book is a monograph written by Despina Vlami, and it's called Trading with the Ottomans, the Levant Company in the Middle East, and it was published in 2014. She talks about how arguably trade is the engine of history and the acceleration in what you might call mm. globalism from the beginning of the last millennial, last millennium and how it has been driven by communities interacting with each other through elements of commerce and exchange. And the Ottoman Empire was a trading partner for the rest of the world and therefore the key link between the West and the Middle East in the 15th to 19th centuries. 
there's been a lot of academic attention that's been given to the East India Company, but the less well-known one is the Levant Company, which had uh, an exclusive right to trade with the Ottoman Empire between 1581 and 1825. And the Levant Company exported British manufacturing, uh, colonial goods and raw materials, so things like imported silk. It also um, imported cotton, spices, currants and other Levantine goods. And it set up factories or trading establishments across the Ottoman lands and hired consuls, company employees and agents from among its members and also foreign tradesmen and locals. So um, Vlami outlines the relationship between the Ottoman Empire and the Levant Company. Uh, and she traces the company's last glimpses of prosperity combined with the slump periods and tension as both the Ottoman and the British Empire faced quite significant changes and war. And also points out that the growth of free trade and the end of protectionism coincided with a type of modernization and reform while doing so. So I think the book provides a new lens through which to view the decline of the Ottoman world. Um, Mm. So really interesting, comprehensive study of the Ottoman Empire and the Levant Company. I think you are the first guest we've had on our show to use their time on a deserted island to finish a chapter of their PhD. And I have to, I have to congratulate you because as I'm thinking about it, that is the most efficient use of your time on a deserted island that I can think of. And what an enjoyable way to work on your PhD surrounded by the ocean. So very well done, I think. (laughs) It would be very enjoyable. It's the best way to write a PhD I can think of, for sure. Yeah, by the ocean. Yeah. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? So (laughs) first and foremost, about finishing and submitting my PhD thesis. Yay. Oh, I know that's a lot of work. (laughs) I know. So it's the final, it's the final hurdle, final year. So yeah, so my PhD research is investigating portrayals. Turks um, of Ottomans in early modern cultural discourses and how they often resisted historical accuracy because they were represented, like I was saying, as violent, lustful, despotic, despite the existence of a number of 17th century Anglo-Ottoman correspondence documents where Ottomans are often associated with positive things like wealth, military strength, political efficiency. So the stereotyped cultural Turk figure also affected the way that dramatists portrayed Turks on stage very negatively, but I am personally looking at how the theatrical type may have generally encouraged early modern resurgences of crusading rhetoric. But in in opposition to this, I'm looking at Folk Greville, Thomas Goff and Roger Boyle's um, work, their plays, and how they might be instead read as a response to culturally influenced portrayals of Turks on stage, promoting the emergence of what I call an anti-crusading rhetoric, which I don't believe has been looked into very much especially with, to do with early modern drama in identifying and exploring how the emergence of a more nuanced, more positive theatrical Turkish type aligned with this anti-crusading agenda, focusing on more accurate portrayals of Turks whose violence is often justified by Ottoman law. And then another thing that I'm very excited about is a forthcoming publication of an edited collection, which um, is going to be published in 2022. Um, I'm both contributing a chapter as well as co-editing the collection um, alongside Dr. Murat Urchu, who is assistant professor at Cappadocia University in Turkey. And the edited collection is a medieval and early modern orients publication. And this medieval and early modern orients, um, as I mentioned beforehand, uh, I'm part of the research team and events editor for. And it's a fantastic AHRC funded decolonial project that 
was founded by Lubaba Al-Azami and Samira Hassan, and it seeks to further knowledge and understanding of the early interactions between England and the Islamic worlds um, via our website pages and our blog. So the volume's called Materializing the East in Early Modern English Drama, and it stems from the recognition that um, despite the popularity of plays about the East in the early modern period, the representation of the East has kind of been overlooked, marginalized as footnotes or generalized into taken for granted stereotypes. And so there's a need to focus on the multi-layered and often conflicting and changing perceptions of the East and how dramatic works made use of their respective theatrical physical spaces to represent the concept of the East in drama. So the volume re-examines these representations and misrepresentations of the East in the early modern English outdoor and indoor stages to broaden our understanding of early modern theatrical productions beyond Shakespeare and beyond the European continent and basically looks at how performance affects the conceptualization of the East on early modern English outdoor and indoor stages, um, emphasising the material aspects of dramatic performances in the Elizabethan, Jacobean, Caroline and Restoration periods. And among the many wonderful, wonderfully knowledgeable contributors that are um, contributing chapters to the collection, um, we're very lucky that our afterword will be written by Jyotsna G. Singh, who is professor at the Department of English at Michigan State University. So we feel very privileged that someone of her esteem within our field has agreed to write this important part of the collection. And we've also recently received very good news. We've received confirmation that Arden Bloomsbury will publish our volume as part of their early modern studies and drama series, which is edited by Lisa Hopkins and Douglas Brewster. So we also feel very privileged and very happy that we have this wonderful platform through which to disseminate this research. It all sounds like a very busy but exciting time for you. This is all fun stuff. We have had uh, we've had Murat as well as Douglas Brewster on our show here. We know them, and yes, certainly excited to see those works come to play. We will link to their episodes in the show notes for today if you want to see what we talked with them about. But Aisha, I know how much work a PhD is, and I'm excited about these edited works professionally. And I'm sure, just due to your interests in these topics, you're thrilled about these achievements. And we look forward to seeing all that you accomplish going forward. We thank you so much for being here and taking us through the history of the Ottomans. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Really, really lovely to talk to you. And thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Don't forget to stop by the show notes for this week's episode. We have packed links to the map of Palestine showing where Jerusalem was situated for Shakespeare's lifetime, as well as portraits of Turkish individuals from the 13th through 16th century. So you can see what the visual representation of the to be Turkish or Ottoman was for Shakespeare's lifetime, as well as portraits of the Ottoman emperor during Shakespeare's lifetime, as well as a whole gaggle of links to great books and resources that Aisha mentions in today's show. Find all these things at castycast.com slash episode 195. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP195. If you enjoy our show, be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform. And please share the show with someone you think might enjoy learning something new about the Bard. 
Our show each week is brought to you by Experience Shakespeare, our members-only collection of history courses and activity kits that let you cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. They're designed to be enjoyed all by themselves, or you can include them in a lesson plan in your classroom. These resources take you inside turn of the 17th century England as Shakespeare would have lived it, exploring games, sports, clothes, and recipes that are mentioned in Shakespeare's plays. Find out more and sign up today at castycash.com slash member. That's castycash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.